Welcome to the eighth body sode. Joining me today is Anthea E. Wheel. Wait a second, Doctor Anthea E. Wheel. <laughs> you know that that never gets old. So <laughs> I'll I'll take it. You're probably the only one that calls me that, uh, but you know, <laughs> I'll take it. It feels good. One day, one day when I get my degree, I would also like to be called. Doctor. I know. I just want to f- flex a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So I'm super excited about today's article because like this is like some cutting edge top of the line prime stake information here and today we'll be reviewing a paper uh, titled Enhancing Cancer Immunotherapy with Nanomedicine. And immunotherapy is my favorite topic to talk about even though I don't work with it. Actually I slightly work with immunotherapy. <laughs> at a preclinical yeah state. yeah you can say that you can say wait wait till your paper gets published yeah. and then we'll you know talk <laughs> way more about That's it right, later yeah, <laughs> but yeah in the in this paper we are mostly going to talk about checkpoint therapy with a dash of nanomedicine <laughs> with some nanoparticles in there the first author is daryl j Irwin. and the corresponding author is eric l dane both of them are from uh, Cook Institute for Integrative Cancer Research from MIT. I love reading this paper. This was so yeah, so really well written, read. to the point. Really great read. I think I was uh, too excited about reviewing this paper today, so my cheeks are a little sore. So if it sounds like my um, <laughs> cheeks are too tight from all the smiling I was doing, just you know, don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you smiling? Oh man, I think papers? I think I was doing more than smiling, but we'll just we'll just keep it to smiling to smear That's my pride. That's very weird. I, I gotta say that. <laughs> I wish somebody looked at me like you looked at this paper. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just such a good read, though, because well, we'll get more into that. Anyway, um, we have never done a review article on this podcast before, but I feel like a review article would be very good to give a broad overview yeah. of the field in general. Yeah. So one reason why we chose this paper is uh, it helps to set the stage for a lot of the uh, future reviews that or uh, I'm sorry, future um, articles that we'll be reviewing uh, to set Mm -hmm. the stage on um, this whole world with cancer, immunotherapies, even using nanomedicine. So we're not experts in nanomedicine. We are primarily classically trained in immunology, uh, but really really great insight as to the move of therapies um using cancer immunotherapy so let's get into it yep and cancer is where all the money is cancer is all (laughs) the money makers (laughs) i I mean all all the good immunotherapeutics they first start with cancer and then when they get success (laughs) success the autoimmune people like us all those uh, people uh, in the inflammatory disorders they start using some of those similar techniques but just the opposite way (laughs) yeah it's a lot of uh interdisciplinary so a word that we kind of uh used last article i think it was a lot of interdisciplinary that uh goes into just creating cancer different cancer treatments right Mm -hmm. that that is so there is one very important class of uh cancer therapeutics that are also uh, somewhat uh, 
I would say immunotherapeutics, but we're not going to discuss them today. And these are going to be uh, metabolic inhibitors. Uh, there are a lot of metabolic inhibitors that either prevent uh, immune suppression in a cancer and allow the immune system to take care of it better. Not in this particle. However, we are going to be deal dealing a lot with checkpoint inhibitors. And before we dive in to the article, let's do some some things some uh, some things we need to take care of first of all i posted a trivia on facebook and the trivia question was cal reticulin which is a protein generally associated with mhc class 1 folding in the endoplasmic reticulum this protein has another function related to immune stimulation and i asked our audience what is it and I did not expect, actually, I did not know about this until I read this paper. And it turns out people outside actually <laughs> <laughs> know a lot. We got four people who gave the correct answers. Round of applause. Yeah, can you do the honors? <laughs> Yay! Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll edit some music in there for applause. But yeah. <laughs> Anthea, can you... Uh, read out their names yeah so we want to give a quick congratulations to um and i hope i don't butcher these names uh and hell sioxen uh benjamin and also cesar or caesar or cesar cesar, cesar. If, if so if, with whatever little spanish i know it has to be cesar Okay, we'll agree on that one. <laughs> Same, sorry. Everyone gets my name wrong too, so I, I apologize for that. <laughs> anyway, thank, uh, congratulations, guys. You're doing great. Um, it's good. To, it's good to be participating in these. Uh, yeah. Trivia. Another another request from one of our audience members. Um, so, Aranzasu Arias uh, asked me to mention one of the public journal clubs that that is an immunology journal club and they are there i think every week they have of the first author of an article discuss his article uh, in front of people and this is since it says public journal club i i guess it's open to people to join yeah it sounds like it is open for people to judge and if we're wrong please feel free to correct us but this is a yeah. great way of engaging with other scientists about uh some of the movements that we have today that is that is true in fact we're going to start one of ours very soon and uh, probably this or next month not this month this month is over but yeah next month very soon so do check out their public journal club it will be in the description of this episode Okay, so next, we actually want to start off this review with a little bit um, of a switch up. We want to start with light history. So because this paper is heavily involved in um, just immunotherapies and cancer and actually even moving into clinical trials, we want to give you a light history on uh, just how we got to this point today. So... Yep. If you guys are unfamiliar, uh, one of the fathers of immunotherapy uh, is actually named William B. Coley. William B. Coley, uh, I think in 1891, actually. So Ooh. very fascinating story, quickly. <laughs> William Coley uh, was actually an oncologist who um, studied 
different types of sarcomas, right? So his idea was to say, hey, these patients aren't um, going into remission or you have inoperable uh, tumors uh, that you can't find success on. So one of his ideas was actually to inject these patients um, with a bacterial toxin. <laughs> mm-hmm. you want, he wanted to inject these patients with a bacterial toxin to try to an, uh, amount an immune response uh, that will in turn secondary attack these cancerous cells. Can you imagine like being a cancer patient and saying like, <laughs> hey, let me get some of this bacterial toxin and go ahead and yeah, put it inside you because... It, 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 it reminds me of that story about cholitoxins about uh, the no, scientist. I'm not sure what's that, his name. but That is exactly what it is. So William B. Uh, Coley actually oh, uh, was... It's, it's, yeah, cholitoxin. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not uh, used today by oncologists, but his studies definitely have led to interest of cancer vaccinations and immunotherapies to actually battle cancer. So like I said, he had this idea to treat um, sarcoma with this immunotherapy uh, type of response by stimulating immune cells to attack these malignant tumors right more Mm -hmm. so of a secondary kind of effect so what he actually did was he injected strep into patients who had these inoperable cancers and uh it it caused this you know systemic response um that is actually reminds me similarly to how we treat lps uh in vitro Right? Can you can you yeah, make that, that comparison that is, that too? Is. Right? <laughs> you know how we take um, LPS, different doses of LPS, and we'll treat um, cultured cells, mm-hmm. and you know maybe marker A or marker B or whatever cytokine response or uh, trigger you want to observe. Uh, you use this um, kind of attenuated response or stimulation rather to uh, measure or to gate these cytokine responses right or it could be like i said any other type of extracellular markers as well too Mm -hmm. but yeah so anywho i'm sorry he uh found that the tumor disappeared due to the attack of the immune system so that was where the peak of this just immunotherapy um originated from and that's that's quite interesting because we actually still use some of those strategies yeah. in this in this day and age. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I I won't give any spoilers right now. We'll just come to it later on. Yeah, how something like pattern recognition receptors. Oh, yeah. we have to re- we have to define pattern recognition yeah. receptors. So I, I won't talk about it. Right okay. Now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you know, as we talk about these immunotherapies and just the history of this. Um, current modern present day uh, researchers have more so focused this immunotherapeutic response into how we can actually deliver it more localized and more safer for the surrounding tissue as well as Mm -hmm. in general the patients. So I just want to mention uh, here, you said it was somewhere in 1890s, right? 1819. That's before we knew about cellular immunity or human immunity. Yes. This guy was way ahead of (laughs) his time. He was a way ahead of the time. You know, and also too, when you think about back in those days, you were most likely rejected from your theories Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) way faster than your PI today saying, no, that's a stupid idea. Well, Hopefully no one says that, but, you know, rethinking maybe some of the strategies that we've said today, this is something that was like really ahead of its time. Yeah. I, so just side we are on this, I want to mention that the first 
scientists who ever mentioned about what we now know uh, know as regulatory T cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He called those suppressor T cells, yep. and people just did not believe him. People yep. thought this guy is making up stuff. Yeah, and this, <laughs> you know, Jatin, this actually was more so discovered in the 2000s. Right. Like Ooh, yeah. th- this wasn't like an 1891 discovery. Regulatory mm-hmm. T cells were more <laughs> in the 2000s. Yeah. Early. I think it's around 1995 or some some something around that very close to that uh, start of the 21st century. Right. And, right. And so every time it just just to the audience, if your reviewer, if the reviewer <laughs> rejects your your explanation maybe you are way ahead of your time maybe you are ahead of your time that is so encouraging right <laughs> or you made a very bad mistake so one of those <laughs> yeah 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 so while we're on the uh conversation about immunotherapies always our goal is to see how we can mostly uh affect the patient population right so then that's where we move into clinical trials so i want to read off a few statistics that i think will be uh relevant towards our read today and if you go to uh i believe the website is clinicaltrial.gov right for all uh clinical trials around the world so all studies in all phases of clinical trials, there is about 131,000 clinical trials in all phases. So they can be phase one through phase four. So we get a little bit more specific and all studies in cancer in the USA is about 3,600,000, uh, I'm sorry, 36,000 uh, in all those phases. So it dwindles down a little bit more where you only have um all cancer studies and phase four trials it's only about 414 right so there's only 414 clinical trials in phase four clinical studies out of the 131,000 of all clinical studies in all phases right and so I'll, I'll just mention right here we did discuss so uh, me and tanu we discussed about the phases of clinical trials and what happens in each physical uh, clinical trials in the last episode so anybody who is not sure please check that out uh anthea please continue oh, sorry cool. for interrupting no problem so all cancer studies in three or four in the usa of yeah, cancer studies, I'm sorry, is about 3,000 um, studies in total, but it gets even more uh, specific when um, if you type in nano and cancer, because you can be kind of specific towards the hits you want in as far as clinical trials goes. And it's only 21 studies uh, that are in um, any phase of clinical trials for cancer in the USA. So we're actually really hitting on something that is... I don't want to say up and coming because mm-hmm. I feel like nanomaterial has been kind of it's been there surfacing. For a, yeah, a long time. you know, but as far as taking it to a clinical st- uh, trial phase, it's actually pretty more novel stuff. And also, yeah. also it combining with the checkpoint blocker therapies, the immunotherapeutics, that's something new as well. Right, right, right. So also disclaimer too, I'm not sure uh, if that concludes all studies. So 21 studies for cancer with the uh, hit terms of nano or cancer in the US. Um, I'm not sure if that just excludes all studies that have been closed, open, completed uh, as well. But I just want to put that out there that this is actually a pretty um, important and imperative area that, you know, can be explored further. 
that so yeah uh, a lot a lot of these clinical trials and you said majority of clinical trials are for cancers so the the chances that we're going to find a new therapeutic in this field is a lot more just because there are more people investigating uh the potential remedies yeah. right for yeah for cancers yeah. and with that is would this be a good segue into some terminology before yeah. we start the, the meat of the paper oh yes <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so one term we want to start off with is actually nanoparticles. So you can call it nanoparticles, nanomolecules, nanotechnology. I've heard all these terms interchangeably. So whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. nano, blah, <laughs> it's fine with me. Uh, but nanoparticles are actually um, considered to be molecules that are 10 to 100 nanometers uh, in size. Right. So they actually have to be really, really tiny in order mm -hmm. to penetrate or uh, go to wherever location uh, we're trying to send it to. I guess we could say anything below one micron. Yeah. Could be considered nanoparticle. Yeah. Yeah. More towards the hundreds range. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, just to put more context to that, if you think about uh, porous entities within our vesicles that ranges from about 20 to 40 nanometers mm -hmm. so cool. it has to be small enough to get inside you know either vesicles or other parts yeah and i'll just mention there even though i don't think it will be very relevant but it's just what i remember from from my engineering physics class <laughs> that <laughs> i took i think three three years three not only three oh my god wait that's been six years <laughs> yeah, six years back, what I remember from my physics class is that nanoparticles, so the same, they could be made up of the same elements yep. that we are very uh, well aware of. However, when it's uh, the altered properties that these particles have, it's all a function of their altered surface area to volume ratios. Yep. So when things go very, very small, they have a huge surface area to volume ratios and just because of this increased ratio they can act like a completely different material a lot of a lot of the unique properties that we're going to see about these particles is because of this this property of the high surface area to volume ratios yeah what a great addition to uh that previous information all right next stuff do you want to do you want to talk about pharmacokinetics a little bit? Yeah. So next, as we talk about nanoparticles or in drug delivery, you have to consider the pharmacokinetics. <laughs> Almost mm -hmm. slipped again. Pharmacokinetics, uh, and pharmacokinetics is basically the movement of drugs within the body, right? So if you take an aspirin or you take drug A, uh, pharmacokinetics helps to actually um, assess how the drug is actually being absorbed, where is it going, how is it being distributed, how is it being uh, um, broken down, uh, metabolized, and how is it going to be excreted? How's it gonna exit your body? So all these things play a significant role in whether the drug is deemed safe or non-safe um, or toxic actually to the human system. That's right. Just remember this magic word, A-D-M-E, ADME. A-D-M-E. Almost like the Acme company that Wiley 
Coyote. <laughs> Coyote <laughs> used to get his products from. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, this episode was totally sponsored by Acme. <laughs> we we wish right <laughs> we wish we wish yeah although all all, all, of, all of his mischief always failed but well somebody's sponsoring that company and somebody got a sponsor this podcast oh so yeah let it be acme <laughs> that's true <laughs> yeah the, so the ten- next yeah the next term is uh relapse and remission so remission is when you start to see amelioration or betterment in the disease uh it could be any disease mostly in cancer when the tumor starts shrinking we call it signs of remission when it's completely shrunk and gone we call it complete remission relapse is the reappearance of the disease uh, in case of cancer it's the reappearance of tumors while there is a very nice there are some very nice hypotheses about how how it works there is the cancer stem cell hypothesis which i love and mm. i'm going to completely not talk about it today <laughs> just for the sake of time but yeah maybe one day we'll talk about the uh, hypothesis behind cancer relapse all right so these two are the terms next metastasis and tumor microenvironment if a cancer patient <laughs> a uh, patient i'm sorry or uh if a patient in general has a tumor um and it reaches uh metastasis that means that the tumor has spread into the surrounding environment much like describing this tme so mm-hmm. the tumor microenvironment is the environment around the t- tumor um that's including blood vessels immune cells fibroblasts signal molecules and even extracellular matrix so if it has spread further into either surrounding organs or tissue or so forth uh it has become malignant if you if you take an activated immune cell and if you culture that in the presence of fluid or let's say media that has been uh that has been uh in presence of cancer cells that that kind of media can turn down immune responses because that's mm-hmm. what cancers want and this yep. tumor and microenvironment is a huge deal how cancers evade immune responses The next stuff is pattern recognition receptors and brings me back to uh, our previous conversation about coli. What coli did there, he was in he was giving the patients extracts of bacteria, right? And he was trying to elicit the immune response. Pattern recognition receptors are innate immune receptors that have evolved to specifically recognize conserved conserved patterns that are present in pathogens for example gram negative bacteria have lipopolysaccharide or lps in their cell wall so there are certain pattern recognition receptors that are a part of our innate immune system that only and only recognize lps then so if if this pattern recognition rec- receptor recognizes something that is uh, that is originating from microbial origin the ligand for this receptor we would call that microbe associated molecular patterns or mamps mamps if this pattern recognition recognizes something that is a part of a of let's say a dangerous environment we would call this ligand of this receptor as danger signals also called da- death associated molecular patterns or damps So pattern recognition receptors can recognize both MAMPs and DAMPs. Think of DAMPs like 
if you are in a house or let's say i'm going to go dark a little bit but imagine you entered your house and you f you saw blood that would be immediately a sign for you that something's going wrong that's exactly what happens in our in our body when there are dead cells around that's a big alarm for the immune system and those those uh, debris from the dead cells a lot of things that come out of dead cells those are a part of death associated molecular patterns wow thanks that's really a great example to remember damps and mams <laughs> i wish i have uh, learned that or learned it that way when i was learning taking my first immunology class because it's like pamps damps <laughs> and prrs and so forth <laughs> Yeah, these, these, these things are very interesting if you look at it from a different perspective. Yeah, it is, but very useful towards triggering some of those innate responses, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so next we'll move into chemotherapy and radiotherapy or chemotherapeutics and radiotherapeutics. Now, this one is um, pretty common terms that we've heard before, right? Wouldn't you say mm -hmm. like, oh chemotherapy or radiotherapy but to actually define what those mean is actually quite different in approach so it they have the common goal to uh, damage and kill cancerous cells or even tumors um, mm -hmm. but they kind of the mechanisms work a little bit differently so if you talk about chemotherapy or chemotherapeutic drugs it's used to kill or i'm sorry used to treat cancer well hopefully kill them, uh, but it works more systemically. So it's actually a drug that is administered and it'll work everywhere. So the goal is to stop the spread of the cancer, um, but it also can have a high impact on healthy cells, right? Because it's systemic, that just kind yes. of makes sense. Because these chemotherapeutics, they're, they don't know what's a cancer cell and what's right. not. All they know, all they, all they affect are rapidly growing cells. Right. Rapidly growing cells, which in turn usually affects hair follicles, uh, cells in the mouth. So these patients who are undergoing chemotherapy experience nausea, loss of appetite, even diarrhea. Um, it also affects blood forming cells, right? These are all fast growing cells. So patients can experience uh, anemia, uh, have an increase in infections and also bruising, right? So they can yes. get cold quicker, just a really, really harsh, um, shock towards the body honestly you know it, it's more in benefit but lots of people really have a hard time uh going through chemotherapy and i'll, I'll just point out here when i said chemotherapeutics affect rapidly dividing cells some of these rapidly dividing cells are immune cells and just to give an example methotrexate methotrexate is an it's it's a drug that is that was conventionally used for treating cancers but it turns out this is also a very good anti-inflammatory drug because it prevents T-cells from uh, dividing. In relation to chemotherapy, uh, we'll move into radiation or radiotherapy. Uh, and that's actually using high energy particles or wavelengths to destroy or damage cancerous cells. So 
what uh, oncologists do is they use special equipment to actually deliver high doses of radiation to cancerous cells directly. So you can use this in combination with chemotherapy or you can use it um, by itself treating tumor cells. But uh, for the most part, it's using this high energy particles or wavelength to uh, actually target more localized tumors. So you can actually use these radio radioactive materials directly in tumor locations which hopefully I'll be talking more about later on in this mm -hmm. review because I have some really exciting like research that's being done. But uh, yeah, so it's more localized. Um, and like I said, you can use it in combination with chemotherapy. Yeah, since you can shine a light wherever you want in your body. It's yeah. just, <laughs> yeah. you, you can localize it. Chemotherapeutics are hard to localize because you need to find a route. Then, actually, thanks, thanks a lot. And yeah, that was very useful. Next, I'll go for checkpoint blockade, which is going to be a central theme for a lot of things that we'll talk about in this uh, discussion. Let's say when immune cells get activated, they automatically upregulate certain molecules that it's like when they get activated, they automatically start showing off, showing an off switch so that in turn, when when they are done doing their job they can be turned off so it's a very important part of their functioning because if if in a world where immune cells got activated and they did not show a turn off switch this would lead to disorders like uh, autoimmunity or extreme inflammation so they must show these uh, off switches and to add just a little soundbite from uh, my previous PI, as well as Jatin's current PI, mm -hmm. <laughs> Dr. Joseph Larkin at the University of Florida, he always puts it so eloquently when he says that, you know, inflammation is a good thing or immune responses is a good thing, but too much inflammation is detrimental towards the system. So it's like, yes, we want inflammation to come and clear infection or um, injury, but we don't want it to go over-regulate it because then that's how you'll have uh, self tissue damage, which, like you said, will lead into uh, autoimmunity, uh, as well as an, uh, other cascades. That's right. <laughs> so the so as Cynthia said, these, these turn off switches are very important for turning off the immune response. And they're important so that these immune cells don't go causing damage where they're not required. However, so these 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 turn off switches are the checkpoints. These are the checkpoints. And it turns out that cancer cells know very well to utilize these for their own benefit. So a lot of times the, the tumors will express the ligands for these checkpoints and will turn down immune responses. Checkpoint blockade therapy is a therapy where your immune cells, their turn off signals or the checkpoints are blocked so that the cancer cannot block uh, cannot excite that receptor and turn down immune response so it's it's like it's it's like it's going to be a very bad thing to do in a normal individual but in cancers where your immune response is very much required blocking their checkpoints can help the immune system work much more uh, freely without suppression right and can you give us some examples of what some of those blockades are that's, that's so thanks thanks for asking um i'll just mention uh, two of them that are very commonly known there is one called pd1 
programmed cell death one its ligand is pdl1 programmed cell death ligand one uh, pd1 is usually expressed by activated t cells and the pro its ligand can be expressed by uh, antigen presenting cells or regulatory t cells and and in this case also cancer cells and cancers can display these yeah so, actually in uh cancerous cells they found uh high very high expressions of uh pdl1 oh yeah certain cancers do that and um when when there's an interaction between pd1 and pdl1 the t cells goes into an exhausted stage it could it could uh, go through apoptosis or it could just be exhausted which means it's not going to get activated very likely again another another one of a checkpoint is uh, called ctla4 so ctla4 is a ctla4 is a checkpoint in it's it's like an inhibitory molecule that's expressed by regulatory t cells and it interacts with a co-stimulatory molecule on antigen presenting cells and these antigen these co-stimulatory molecules are usually uh, b7 class molecules we call them b7 class molecules cd80 or cd86 normally effector t cells so let's say conventional t cells that go around causing inflammation these t cells need the uh, antigen presenting cells to give them a second signal which we call co-stimulation however when regulatory t cells which express ctla4 come around the antigen presenting cell they can block the antigen presenting cell from providing this co-stimulation and that's how indirectly these regulatory t cells can stop the activation of the T cells and again there are certain so this is another way checkpoint blocker therapy works you can have an antibody against CTLA4 so that the CTLA4 mediated blockade a, I mean inhibition does not work and these antigen presenting cells can go wild show their uh, stimulate the T cells and the T cells can also go wild and probably kill the cancer can I just add, you know, just an interesting fact here uh, for all of the up and coming scientists mm -hmm. or all of the currently existing scientists, we are truly living in exciting times now. And this is one of the reasons why I smiled heavily so much. <laughs> Actually, it was more like clap my hands, jump up and down and spin around <laughs> in circles type of thing because we're actually living in very exciting times now because it was only in 2018 where the discoverers of both PD-1 and CDLA-4 uh, actually won the Nobel uh, Prize for it, right? Like mm -hmm. 2018 Nobel, Nobel Prize laureates yeah. <laughs> walked the earth and discovered something so pivotal in immunotherapies or just disease progress period right so 2018 and that was actually done by dr james allison as well as dr hanjo in japan these were given for uh, showing their immunotherapeutic role right not for their discovery yeah because these were discovered a long time back but yeah these guys showed that they were actually used for yeah, immunotherapeutic that was yes so i'm cool. sorry to, to clarify that they were Nobel prize laureates for their uh, immunotherapeutic roles yes but that is just so 
exciting, right? You think that about is. it. It's like saying I discovered sliced bread two uh, <laughs> years ago. <laughs> oh man, this, this, this field gets me excited as well. Not to the point that I smile looking at the paper because I'm a normal human being. And the, I <laughs> see a doctor. <laughs> but yeah. But it just gets me excited to know that, you know, I've been in lab working with these same immune cells and like we're getting closer and closer to something that has killed more people than COVID-19. Yep. Right? That has like killed more people than car accidents. That mm -hmm. that progressively just is becoming more prevalent each year. We're getting closer and closer to understanding how to really shut this thing down. As the cancers are evolving, so are, so are we <laughs> trying to get rid of them. The last terminology we're going to get into before we get into the meat of the paper is actually T-cell activation. Uh, T-cell activation is um, a pretty important point that we emphasize in uh, most of our immunology classes uh, because it really tells how adaptive immunity is starting to kick in uh, and connect with innate immunity, right? So uh, T-cell activation happens in three steps or three signals. The first in which is where the T cell is presented an antigen, right, by antigen presenting cells. This is where you'll see expression of the TCR and also MHC class 2 or 1 in some cases um, communication. The second signal comes in where you have co-stimulation of the T cells. So it's like shaking the hand or doing the secret handshake, right, of the um, antigen presenting cell. So you have this co-stimulation where you have uh, CD28 will shake hands with CD80 of the APC or CD86. Then the third signal is where when these stimulation or this activation or I'm sorry, presentation of antigen with the secret handshake happens, the T cell is now able to communicate to other APCs or the surrounding environment by the production of cytokines. So here's our three signals. You need all three in order to have a fully activated T cell and this is how adaptive immunity uh, essentially sometimes is uh, activated. Okay, so diving into the meat of the paper. So to set the grounds, again, we know that these nanomedicines uh, are being used to, pr pr to promote uh, immunotherapy reactions in tumors. Um, the goal is to actually localize immunotherapy so it confines the administration of these drugs to tumors or at least tumor draining lymph nodes. Uh, we want to maximize the, the stimulation in the TME while also minimizing toxicity towards the rest of the system. So put that in mind when you think about uh, just these unique modes of action in immunotherapy. The first mode of action in immunotherapy uh, example that they're giving is talking about uh, enhancing permeation, right? And also this retention effect. So it's concentrating the drug in these tumor sites so that it's able to trigger these immune responses. I'll just add in some things there. Uh, you're right, this enhanced uh, permeation retention effect is a big selling point for these nan nanoparticles. It's because the they have a size of around um, uh, I think around uh, 30 to 100 nanometers. With that uh, with that size, they are too big to enter the the blood vessels, the vasculature of blood vessels for right. uh, healthy 
tissues. So when they are in the blood, they cannot leave the blood vessels for the healthy tissues because they're too big for that. However, tumors, tumors have a very different uh, vasculature around them. Tumors cause something called angiogenesis where they cause their own blood vessels to form around so that they can have enhanced nutrients flowing through there. And these dysfunctional vasculature, they are more permeable to the nanoparticles for that size. So in this way, these nanoparticles are more likely to end up in tumors instead of healthy tissues. So right here, they are reducing the bystander effect. Angiogenesis is also um, a well-studied area or an area that is being studied with uh, decreasing cancer size as well, too. Yep. Yeah. So the next one is also interacting with external energy sources such as ionizing radiation or photodynamic therapy or even alternating uh, magnetic fields. So this will in turn... So uh, I have some examples that I, okay. I, I can I could I couldn't stop myself. So they they give an example about uh, this nanoparticle that's made of hafnium oxide. So this is an inorganic mo- uh, element. I think hafnium oxide. It has an atomic number. Hafnium has an atomic number of seventy-two. And usually, uh, particles that are huge, they are. So in, in they they have a high potential for uh, releasing radiation. So all the radioactive materials that we know they have very high mo- uh, atomic numbers. Yeah. This particular nanoparticle, what it does is, you can target it to particular uh, a, a particular tumor, just like we said, using enhanced uh, permeation retention effect, or also through certain uh, targeting molecules on it. Then when these hafnium oxide nanoparticles reach their target, they release electrons when they are ionized. In this way, you can use your radiotherapy at a lower uh, intensity and wherever the hafnium oxide nanoparticles have concentrated, they will just get excited by the ionizing radiation and they will release their own radiation which will locally kill the tumor cells. About... 10 years ago, maybe in about 2012, actually, I went to a talk um, hosted by Dr. Novella Bridges. She's currently at uh, PNNL Laboratory. Sorry, tongue twister. (laughs) But um, I want to say she was in inorganic chemistry and she gave an amazing talk about radio gels. Right. And she was looking at radio gels, uh, which are mildly radioactive elements, and and actually inserted it into gels that were first liquid and they'll become gel like um, substrates or they'll become gel like when it reaches uh, about 28 degrees Celsius. That gel then somehow, some way will attach itself to this tumor or cancerous cells and you can uh, excite, right, what we talked about before, these ionizing radiation, photodynamic therapies and so forth, uh, excite this radioactive material to then um, attack these cancerous cells. And that was really the first time I really just heard about this radioactive material targeting cancerous cells especially in gel form right like (laughs) and that too in a in a temperature sensitive way yeah in a temperature sensitive way so since since you're on that uh there is a similar therapy here but yeah please continue i'll I'll, I'll oh no go ahead 
Okay. So just like you said, so there's this uh, pretty gel therapy that works when there's cold temperature. And actually I can imagine just you can, put, if, if it's a solid tumor that bulges out and you can see it, or if you know where it's out, it's towards the external, you can provide cold therapy, right? You can yeah. put ice probably. Yeah, like right. That. But yeah, yeah. In, 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 in our case for nanomedicine, we're using heat. So oh, right. we have we have nanoparticles that are made up of paramagnetic or iron oxide paramagnetic particles are right what we think of things as magnetic they they're attracted by magnetic fields and they are put so as as we know they will reach the tumor some way and then when you apply an alternating magnetic field they're going to vibrate very fast yep and this vibration is going to produce heat and that heat is going to kill the tumor which yeah. is it looks like a very crude way but yeah it works yeah but you know you think about uh those cancers that are hard to remove by surgery or uh therapeutics that are actually less harmful towards the surrounding bodies right or mm -hmm. the surrounding tissue so that's really some localized um medicine or i'm sorry localized therapy that has more benefit towards patients than this systemic detrimental overall fast growing cell tissue right that is right what's the next mechanism of action the next mechanism of action is having uh, multiple ligands so the nanoparticle would then express uh, multiple therapeutics on the surface that will then target whatever immune cells to trigger uh, these responses. It will then induce this magnetic clustering and uh, then you'll just have a conjugation of um, immunostimulation receptors that will then enhance the overall immune response. Oh yeah, that's, that's a lot of stuff. So let me just mention one of the things here. Um, so first, one, one uh, a recurring theme in this paper is about immunogenic tumor cell death, which is tumor cell death that's caused by the immune system. And the whole rationale is that you use some, some kind of stimulant to excite the immune system and get it to recognize the tumor cells so that the cytotoxic T cells themselves can go and kill the tumor cells. So what you said just now, uh, by presenting certain uh, ligands so one of the ligands one of the ligands is actually uh, a, it's anti-cd28 antibodies as well as immobilized peptides that are presented on the mhc molecules so anti-cd28 as well as mhc mhc with anti-tumor peptides that are being expressed on the nanoparticles so these nanoparticles go inside near the tumor site and then you apply what you just said, magnetic field. This magnetic field, assuming these nanoparticles are magnetic, they are going to cluster together and they're going to, so if they're individual nanoparticles, one with anti-CD28, the other, another one with the MHC and the peptide, they cluster together and they act as if they are on a single uh, cell, like an antigen presenting cell. And with these, the T cells are receiving first the signal number one, which is in the form of MHC and the peptide and signal number two, which is anti-CD28. And that's how we are activating tumor specific T cells using the nanoparticles. Another strategy that they use is another form of co-stimulatory molecule, which is a 41BB or CD137. I will be honest, I do not know much about this, but what, what they show here is that liposomes 
which are very tiny lipid particles, uh, nanoparticles uh, in this case, these expressing CD137, they are 10 times better at activating T cells than just anti-CD137 antibodies. And it, it does make sense, right? Because our cells, the T cells, they are, they are used to seeing these things being expressed on large cells not yeah. freely floating around so when you give them something that resembles a cell or even if it's not exactly the size of the cell smaller but still if it's attached to a solid surface i think the t-cells just feel more like at home there yeah <laughs> they, they, they find That's it good more, way to think about uh, it recognizable yeah the next mode of action is uh for these nanomedicines to uh, cause endosomal destabilization or this drug cargo. So it's almost kind of like a Trojan horse, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so these nanoparticles present uh, itself towards the uh, immune cell. It has this drug cargo or whatever drug packaging you want to say. And this is kind of mm -hmm. how I primarily have thought of nanomedicine uh, anyway. But they'll present itself, become uh, engulfed in the immune cell, and then cause destabilization where it can then release this drug uh, of interest to it, the particular immune cell. Yeah, so in this case, um, we want to, in case if this, if this drug is targeted towards an immune cell, we want to give something that's going to, excite the immune cell so we just talked about something that was on the surface the signal one and signal two on a nanoparticle another kind of signals that can be taken up by the immune cells from inside these the are cytosol. danger signals yeah yeah in the cytosol these are some danger signals and pamps or when i say mamps <laughs> <laughs> so our kind of danger signal that they have given an example for is double-stranded dna remember double-stranded dna is not supposed to be in the cytosol it's supposed to be in the nucleus so if it's in the cytosol, usually it indicates that a viral in infection normally. Yep. And our cells are very well, mostly, most of the time, they're very well uh, armed to fight viral infections. We have got these pattern recognition receptors inside the cytosol that when triggered by nucleic acid, they activate the cell. And here is what's they, what they're trying to do uh, with this nanoparticle. And let me just tell you, there are pH-sensitive nan nanoparticles yep. that can open up. It's like a shell that's closed. What as soon as the pH drops in the endosome, they open up. Or it could be it could be some other way that where they open up inside the cytosol. But yeah, there are pretty good things. So you can have uh, damps, damage-associated molecular patterns being delivered, or you can even deliver cytokines. That's so cool, right? That's so cool. That's so cool. And I'll just I'll just imagine that you could also give a drug something like this to the tumor itself. So you can have a maybe if you can target it to a tumor, a, a drug that only opens up inside the endoplasm and then it's released inside the tumor directly. Yeah, that or even work, right? signal specific. Yeah. You know, when you think about how some immune cells uh, may be similar to their family of immune cells they still have uh internal differences that could be potentially delivered through this drug cargo right to kind of dampen yeah. some of those responses uh, next in which the paper goes into more details about mode of action and immunotherapy is controlling kinetics of drug release so it's like a time mm -hmm. capsule right so all mm -hmm. the time uh, lots of times actually um a lot of 
medicine that we take like fast acting or slow acting uh, drugs actually are used through the dissolving of the actual pellet or the outside capsule uh, mm -hmm. of whatever drug we're taking. And you can actually have two capsules, which I'm learning more about. <laughs> you can actually have, uh, or let me not say two capsules, but you can have multiple layers in yeah. which the release of the drug happens. So you can use nanoparticles in the same exact way. That's right. And one, one of the examples that they've given here is this nanoparticle that's attached to a photolabile DNA strand complementary to CPG oligonucleotides. Let's just take a step back. <laughs> <laughs> there are pattern recognition receptors. One specific pattern recognition receptor is TLR9, toll-like receptor 9, 9. And, and its ligand is CPG DNA. So when TLR9 get ligated, it, act, it, it releases activating signals for the, for the immune cells. And what they're doing here is they've got these nanoparticles and inside the shell, there are these photolabile DNA strands. Photolabile, they are light sensitive. They're gonna be, they're gonna break when light is shined upon them. And these photolabile DNA strands are complemented towards non-photolabile CPG oligonucleotides. So when this CPG oligonucleotide is complexed with the other, other strand, it's not going to be inflammatory. And it can go around wherever it wants in the body and it's not going to cause inflammation. However, for in this case, they've used for breast tissue, they can they can shine a light, especially uh, an infrared light, for example, in the tumor tissue, which could be a breast tissue. And this light is going to, da it's going to cleave the photolabile DNA strand and it's going to let go of this CPG DNA. So only where the light is shone, the CPG DNA is free to go inside the cells, ligate the TLR9 and cause inflammation. That's so, so you know exactly where you want it and when you want it, you can activate this. It's so cool, right? Right, and also when you think of earlier when we talked about uh, the difference between chemotherapy as well as radiotherapy, uh, radiotherapy is mainly used in uh, things like breast cancer because it wants to local or do more localized targeting. Mm -hmm. That's right, that's right. It's a solid, it's a solid tumor. Right. And uh, when you can see the tumor, and it's, it's in a local place, radiotherapy just works better. And in this case, I don't even, I don't even, so based on my knowledge, infrared light is not, uh, I wouldn't call infrared light as a radiotherapy because it doesn't cause that much damage. So, so maybe in this one, so infrared light is just used for cleaving that, uh, the photolabile DNA. So the infrared light itself is not doing much, but the, its action on the DNA is letting go of this potentially inflammatory stimulus, which is the CPG DNA. Right, which I'm wondering actually, is that what most uh, inorganic chemists or uh, scientists who use radioactive material, I'm wondering if this is one of the things that they actually cause like the mild radioactive material, right? Because that's a term that's been thrown around, mildly I'm, I'm radioactive sure elements. I'm not sure what actually constitutes mildly radioactive. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure about that. With that, we have just discussed some of the potential mechanisms of action, how these nanoparticles are unique in the way they're distributed. And of course, these are, these can all be coupled with uh, 
co-stimulatory uh, therapies, the checkpoint blockades, to make them work better. How about we uh, stop this episode right now since we are over an hour, and it would be a very, it would be a very uh, good discussion in part two where we can look specifically about local systemic and cellular therapies where these nanoparticles are being very useful. Yes, and we'll pick up a very interesting discussion about uh, using CAR T cells, actually, which is one of Mm, (laughs) my favorite areas. Yeah, hot topic. (laughs) (laughs) So make sure you guys stay tuned for the next episode. There will be a part two to this and we'll catch you guys next time. We will catch you guys next time. Don't forget to like our Facebook page. We've got some nice memes over there and I probably will post another trivia, especially since I asked about Cal... Cal reticulin, yeah, Cal reticulin. Last time, I really <laughs> wish I had, I got to discuss about some Cal reticulin stuff in this in this episode. But well, we're over time, and I I don't like to listen to episodes that are over one hour. So I'm assuming my epi, my audience would not either. This would, and we have discussed like we've got a good uh, stuff in this in this one yeah, hour. Yeah, what a good introduction to the things to come, right? Yeah. So stay tuned for our next episode. We got some cool stuff going on. Thanks, Anthea, for joining me today. No problem. See you guys. Bye-bye.